Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests, Nathan Bichez, a writer of Divinations and co-founder of the Everything Bundle, and Lee Jin, formerly of A16Z and now new venture firm, a founder of a new venture firm called Atelier. Lee and Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us, Eric. So we are here today to talk about uh, media and the intersection of media and, and technology and how the media business has evolved over time and w- what's exciting right now. So by way of introduction, uh, Nathan, perhaps why don't you describe what it is you, you are doing with the Everything Bundle and Divinations, and perhaps you could sort of thread a little bit of history of how you know the last few years has led up to this moment. You were at Substack previously, um, and Gimlet, of course. Well, why don't you start, and then we'll go, we'll go to Lee for introduction. Yeah, totally. Uh, so basically for the past, I don't know how many years, I've been working in yeah the intersection of media and technology, and uh, I co-founded a company called Hardbound. That was like a visual tappable format for storytelling on mobile, kind of like uh, like Instagram stories, except for like professionally illustrated and written rather than like photos and videos from just your life. And then after that, I joined Gimlet Media for a little while, which is amazing. And I was there like up until about a year before they got acquired by uh, Spotify. And then I was at Substack for a little while and got to see just journalists and creators of all sorts kind of like going independent, doing their own thing, building subscription uh, businesses. And when I left Substack, I kind of wandered in the wilderness for a while, figuring out what I wanted to do next. And I wasn't quite sure until my friend Dan Shipper gave me a phone call around Thanksgiving of 2019. And uh, he's just somebody I've wanted to work with for like a really long time. And he was actually like a groomsman of my weddings, <laughs> very close. And uh, he was like, hey, I've been thinking about paid newsletters. And I was like, yep, that's, <laughs> that's up my alley. And so um, we started thinking about like what we could do in that together. And we figured you know, we had a bunch of ideas that we're thinking about, but we thought like, okay, that's all sort of like theoretical, like, let's just start some and like, go from there and see if we can get it to work. And so he had super organizers already, which is a really great newsletter on productivity. And then I started divinations and kind of like took it paid from day one, essentially, um, on strategy, especially for early stage companies. And really, we just grew it from there for a little while, and then uh, decided to bundle together and then decided to add more people to the bundle and spin out new things from the bundle. And it's sort of become this whole media company that's focused on kind of like niche topics within business from really the practitioner's perspective. Um, Is it something like the athletic for business or what what do you see as the, is the big vision for this? That's, that's exactly right. The athletic for business is a great comparison. Awesome. Uh, Lee, uh, so you are famous for coining the passion economy among other reasons why why, why you're famous. Why, Why don't you describe how, uh, the passion economy intersects with with media and your interest in media. You were sort of board observer at at uh, Substack. Why don't you give a brief background for you? Yeah, sure. So I guess to to start off with, um, my interest in media is a very long standing interest. Back in college, um, I used to be a prolific reporter for the Harvard Crimson, and was executive editor of another campus publication called The Voice. Um, and also worked for a summer at my hometown newspaper, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, as a business reporter, among other things, covering city hall, local crime, food, etc., and have just always really loved content and um, delivering content and information to users. And long story, but I thought that I wanted to become a journalist. Ultimately, years later, I found myself in venture capital 
Um, it's actually not that uncommon of a path, but I think there's there's not that many of us in the world who have experience both working in media as well as in investing. I think um, that's pretty special. But yeah, it's it's always been an interest of mine. And so while I was at Andreessen Horowitz, we looked at a broad range of different consumer companies, including things in the media space, especially on the platform side, platforms that could give rise to new content and new types of media. We also like to joke that we were a media company that monetizes monetized through venture capital, which I think definitely has you know a bit of truth to it. We were prolific in creating content, whether it was for the blog or for our podcast or like our experiments on YouTube. But we put a ton of content relating to tech and startups out there into the ecosystem. Um, and that was always a component of the job that I really loved. And what else? <laughs> I'm still doing that today. I started a Substack newsletter recently, figured that I would, you know, thoroughly diligence the platform not just from the perspective of, of an investor, but also from the perspective of a writer and have been really enjoying it. Yeah. Let's dive into sort of the, um, how the space has evolved over the past few years, just from an investing perspective. It felt like there was this wave of venture activity in the last you know, five years where there was you know, BuzzFeed and Vox and all these sort of like maybe you know, generation one uh, media companies. And, th- and then we're seeing sort of you know, Substack, The Athletic, Nate, how would you sort of talk about sort of how uh, venture capitalists have, have viewed this space and how maybe they should be viewing it uh, today? Yeah, I, I think of it like two ways, really. And the first was probably a little longer than five years ago. And it was uh, really fueled by cheap like customer acquisition or, or audience acquisition on social networks, like especially Facebook, but also to some extent other ones. And so you'd have companies like BuzzFeed is the flagship one, of course, but then there's like Mike.com is another example, or maybe Upworthy. There's a bunch of companies like that that figured out how to make Facebook's algorithm just send them like extreme amounts of traffic. Just it was like they're unleashing this crazy fire hose. This is also, I mean, it's not all giant like VC funded media companies that did this. This is the era that Wait But Why became popular, a really amazing blog. A lot of, a lot of different companies kind of like uh, jumped on that. And then, you know, th- things happen in the world and Facebook changed their algorithm and it all kind of went away. <laughs> Didn't like a lot of these companies have found ways to survive and go on and, but they've had to change their model for sure. And so uh, that was kind of like wave one. And then wave two, which I think we're not at the peak of yet, is subscriptions. So, you know, the New York Times went from like, I think, six to seven million subscri- subscribers so far in 2020, which is like pretty incredible growth for a company that's been around that long. Um, you know, the Atlantic is growing pretty, pretty rapidly, their number of subscribers. Um, the Athletic is like more on the venture funded side, like probably the primary example of a venture funded um, subscription media company. Um, Substack, obviously Andreessen Horowitz, pretty big series A, you know, which is, which is where I used to work. Um, but there's a lot of excitement around it because the idea is that, okay, if your churn is pretty, pretty good, it's, 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 you have very low churn. And if you have, um, some sort of efficient mechanism to acquire customers and your target market seems to be reasonably large, then what's the sort of thing that would stop you from becoming a really big company? Like if you have a couple million subscribers paying you maybe like 200 bucks a year, like th- that's a great business. And so just because it's consumers, it, like doesn't mean, doesn't mean that it's like not a great business. And it's kind of, I view it as like in the same way that 10 years ago, everyone wanted to fund the next social network and they were sort of ignoring interesting opportunities in enterprise. Now everyone wants to fund like the future of work enterprise thing, like the next Figma or something. And they're sort of ignoring these great uh, consumer subscription opportunities. 
if us three were running a venture firm solely dedicated to these opportunities that you're describing, what would be your thesis in terms of things that you're intrigued by or would be looking for your request for startups and maybe things, uh, you know, that, that you wouldn't be looking for? Yeah, I, th- I think the number one thing is some sort of the first thing you want to look for is evidence of like unlocking a new form of supply that people just can't seem to get enough of. That's like really hard to do because w- with with consumer like media or content oriented stuff, there's like a ton of just there's a hyper abundance of like B minus C plus level content, but there's also like hyper scarcity of A plus content, and so it's very hard to find those things, and it's very hard to um, I think find it in the kind of form that feels somewhat scalable. Um, it's really different to have like an individual um, voice that really pops versus um, a larger media opportunity. So that's where you look at like the platform level is what most people do. But like, you know, there's also other opportunities like with the athletic where um, it's less about an individual voice and it's more about unlocking a different kind of supply because um, you know, a lot of these really talented writers just didn't have the best working conditions at the old sort of like local newspaper they used to work for. And now it's more exciting to be a part of a company that's growing faster, can pay better, um, offers maybe better editorial support, better brand prestige to be a part of. Lee, how might you approach the the same question? Yeah. um, I always try to approach my investing activity by starting with the end consumer and thinking about where consumers are underserved today, Um, either where they're underserved or where they're potentially overserved. This is sort of the Clay Christensen framework of disruption of either targeting the low end of consumers who are overserved by a particular product or service that's in the market today, or consumers who just can't access um, the goods or services that are in the market, and so creating a new market for them. Um, so I always like to start there with the end consumer and thinking about products in the context of what is the big need that consumers want uh, that they have in their lives that this new product is solving for. And I think in the media landscape, one of the big challenges that I see right now is that there is just such a deluge and overwhelming quantity of information that's out there. Like because of social networking platforms and all of these different content platforms, everyone now has a voice and is creating content and putting out that content into the world. And it creates this really overwhelming environment in which consumers are just constantly awash in new information and different sources and different perspectives. And I think the challenge that consumers have in their lives now is really around curation and contextualization and recommendations. Like how do they sort through all of the information that's out there and have a trusted resource to be able to guide them through that deluge of information and contextualize it for them. What startups or what opportunities are there to address those problems? Or, or what would you like to see? Or what, what do you have in mind? Or what would we have in mind? Well, I think Substack is actually, in a way, addresses this problem in in terms of, I think of every newsletter writer on Substack as basically being a curator of a specific type of information that their newsletter is oriented towards. So in in Nathan's case, for instance, with divinations, it's, you know, the business vertical and focusing on curating business information and providing really value added contextualization around all of the information that we have in the world. Um, Different writers have different focuses and, and they're also providing value add recommendations and curation of all of the information that's out there. Yeah. Nathan, before getting uh, deeper into what's happening today, when you look at sort of the, the wave one uh, companies, 
what could some, uh, some a company like BuzzFeed have done differently in your mind? Um, That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, like when I read about the founding story of BuzzFeed, it was really built on this curiosity of like what makes things spread. If you look at like Jonah Peretti's early like pre-BuzzFeed experiments where he, it was almost like internet stunts or whatever. It seems like there's this driving curiosity of like, oh, if I create a thing that like hits people in a certain way, it will get them to share it. And it's almost like, it's it's almost like its own independent attribute of of content that's like sort of agnostic almost of like how it makes you feel because you can have things that you consider to be like really meaningful but it's just not like super shareable in the same way and some things really compel you to share even though it's not that meaningful to you and it's almost like its own thing and so I think there was just like perfect kind of like fit between the moment in history and like the op- the new opportunity that was available because of Facebook algorithms and like the inbuilt curiosity of like of, of Jonah Preddy and, and what the whole, hum- the whole company was like built around. And so it's really hard to go back and say like, oh, they should have done this other thing differently. I mean, I think the kind of content you create is really a function of the business model. It's sort of like the medium is the message, like the business model is the message. And, you know, the kinds of stuff they wrote about wouldn't work with the subscription model. It works with the virality model. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily like, oh, they should have gone back and like added subscriptions from day one. Well, there would have been a huge tension probably between the kind of content that they were excited to create and the kind of content that was spreading on Facebook and uh, the kind of content that would get people to pay. You know, maybe there's a way they could have made that work. Because um, obviously, like, you have to, to some degree, achieve some level of virality in order to grow the top of your funnel for potential subscribers. But I don't know. It's very, it's very hard to like counterfactual companies. Cause there's so much that's like, like, I don't know, just like built in to like the reason why it worked, you know, I, I would have subscribed just to see the, the black and gold sweater or thing that they did that one time. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Become a paid subscriber in order to know the answer of what color it really is. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, totally. That totally work. Yeah. Just, just to add on to that line of thinking, I think to go back to your earlier question, Eric, about like, tracing the evolution of media and technology over the last few years. I think there were a couple of learnings that really emerged um, that have informed new business models as well as uh, just that have arisen from watching media evolve over the last few years. And that is, I think, one, investors and operators realized that there was a disconnect between attracting users versus becoming a healthy business and building a business that actually could make money. Um, So we had a lot of media businesses that got a ton of traffic and a ton of users onto their websites, but we're never really able to translate that into a sustainable source of revenue because the ad dollars all went to Facebook and Google. So that was one was like this realization that even if you build something that a ton of users love, that didn't, that didn't necessarily translate into an actual business. Um, I think that is one of the key learnings of the last decade that new founders have to tackle now. And then the second major learning has been that it's not okay to be disintermediated away from your end consumer. I think a lot of media businesses in the past decade that were built were they were okay with being disintermediated away from their end readers for a time being and distributing their content on Facebook and all of these different algorithmic driven social sites. And they were okay with someone coming into the middle of that relationship between themselves and their end audience. And obviously we have seen that that poses a ton of risks for different media companies. And so I think one of the big learnings going forward is that now everyone wants to have greater control and ownership over their end customers. 
Totally. It helps explain why the New York Times pulled out of Apple News just, I think, either this week or last week, recently. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing you mentioned Lee, uh, a couple minutes ago was sort of contextualization, curation. We also saw over the last few years a lot of sort of social news uh, startups uh, emerge. You know, Nuzzle being one of them. I think Circa w- w- was another. And I guess it just turned out that Facebook and Twitter became the, the social news apps that, that people needed and there wasn't a need for another one. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Twitter is very much functioning as that, as is Facebook. Yeah, and we're all better off for it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Nathan, I want to talk about bundling and unbundling. It's, it's a concept you, you've written about and are, uh, and are putting into practice. Um, how do you think about it in, in the media space? Because I, I've, one question I've had about Substack is, um, you know, it handles the infrastructure for you, but after you, if it doesn't bring you sort of distribution, why continue to give Substack that that cut? Why not just go uh, independent? Um, and what you're trying to do is is by bundling, give more, you know individual uh, sort of writers more distribution they wouldn't have got otherwise. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Then I'm curious your Lee's take on. Yeah, totally. Um, well, like kind of the origin of the idea for me came from just my own experience of seeing a bunch of awesome people writing on Substack that I like wanted to subscribe to, but maybe they were charging like 15 bucks a month, and I'm like, I would pay something, but like. I don't know, probably, I just can't, I can only do so many $15 a month subscriptions, uh, you know, before it becomes pretty, pretty painful. And, you know, it reminded me a lot of how it used to feel to buy uh, an album, like a CD for, for music. Like back in the day, you'd go to Best Buy and you'd be like, do I get this one or that one? Because I really can't have both. And it's a painful feeling. Everybody wants to not have to choose. And I remember when I got Spotify, it was like, oh my God, I can listen to anything. And, and it totally changes your experience of the thing because, like all of a sudden I'm like, because of Spotify, I'm like listening to like jazz or something. I would have never bought a jazz album, but I'm like, now I'm just like, okay, I'm curious about John Coltrane. Like, what's the deal with that? You know? And um, I, I think intellectually there's something really exciting about, you know, bringing that, bringing that to other forms. And, and of course, you know, you can't really bundle something until it's been unbundled and Substack is barely in the unbundling phase of, you know, media companies previously, where it was like individual journalists as like a full-time employee of a magazine or a newspaper deciding to go on their own. There's like sort of just barely starting to be, you know, people doing that. And so it, it's pretty early to kind of like say, okay, there's so many like Substacks now let's try to bundle them. Um, it's un- it's unclear if it's too early or not, but um, just, just from my own perspective as a consumer, um, it seemed to work. But, but the thing I always had questions about as a consumer is like, how does it work on the back end? Like why would people creators be able to like, it seems like they should make a lot less money, right? Because if I'm paying a lot less money, then they should make a lot less money. But it turns out that's not actually true. Like actually creators as a whole make more money because all those sub stacks that I'm not buying because it's like, well, I like it. I kind of want it, but I'm just not willing to pay $15 a month. They're getting $0 from me currently, right? Whereas if you bundle a bunch of people together, let's say there's like two Substacks I really want and I would be willing to pay full price for and a couple Substacks that I kind of want and I would like to check out and read sometimes, but maybe not subscribe at the standalone price. And then a bunch of others that are like nice to have and everyone's one might be cool, but basically I'm not going to read that often. I'm actually willing to pay as a collection uh, enough for those that I can kind of compensate some of my dollars for my subscription fee can go to those other creators that for me are like sort of like secondary or tertiary that I'm, I'm more of a casual fan of. And so it, I actually end up spending more money than I would have if I was just all standalone subscriptions. And so this is, this is the basic like big idea behind bundle economics is it actually creates, it makes uh, sort of 
creators more money in addition to creating more value for consumers. Um, and there's a lot of stuff written in the literature about it, like from, from economics and, and from business school professors. Um, and, and so I kind of dug into that and nerded out about it and wrote a post about it. Um, and we did it as an experiment and we didn't really know if it would work that well. Dan and I, uh, who Dan writes super organizers, I write divinations. And we thought there was a pretty decent amount of overlap in our audiences and that, you know, some of his super fans might be casual fans of me and vice versa. And so, um, we launched our bundle and we weren't sure what would happen. And we grew from like 600 to a thousand subscribers just within a couple of weeks. And that was way more. We thought we'd maybe pick up like 20, 40 net new subscribers. Um, but it was like really a transformative moment for us. And so we're like, okay, let's do it again. So um, we tried to think about how we could do it. Um, reached out to some people. Uh, Tiago Forte um, is, is a really great sort of like guru really within the productivity world. Um, and, and we sort of struck a deal with him to include him in the bundle. And it was like, same thing, just like huge, huge growth, very discontinuous, like, and, and it's like, uh, more than the sort of like what we would have done separately in terms of like revenue. Um, and also there's all this sort of other great stuff that happens on the supply side that I think of kind of like a supply side network effect where like, my writing gets better because Tiago and I are on the same team and he's like reading it and like telling me what he thinks. And it's really, that's very, very helpful. It feels very good to, to be a part of a community of people that are kind of like pushing each other forward. There's this like genius in the scene, like senius kind of thing that people talk about happening. And uh, I love that. And so it just, it feels like, you know, we don't really know how far it could go, but it feels really good right now. And we want to keep doing, doing more stuff with more people and, you know, paying people out, the vast majority of the revenue that we attribute to them um, so that it's a good deal for everyone all around to just kind of like a positive sum game. Totally. The questions in the back of my mind right now are, sounds so fun. Should I join this bundle? Yeah. This Twitter, this Twitter account. Um, Let's uh, do uh, it. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll talk offline, but it, that, that sounds super cool. Should Ben Thompson have a, be part of a bundle? Like would it be better for his economics or is he just, you know, so outside of the stratosphere, like in his own you know universe that it wouldn't make sense for him to, Yeah. This is where we get into like, you know, it's, I think probably at some, if you did an economic calculation, it might actually be valuable for Ben Thompson to join the bundle, but also like there's this kind of like status sinking monkey thing about human behavior that uh, Eugene way has written about before. That's kind of like Ben Thompson is obviously the OG and like, we're nobodies. And so, I mean, like, we're not like nobodies, but like, you know, we're nobodies. Right. So, um, it would be tough to convince Ben Thompson probably to do our thing, but like, you know, Ben Thompson, if you're listening, we will, (laughs) you know, gladly kiss the ring or whatever. I don't know. Um, But no, I mean, like, honestly, Ben Thompson's a huge inspiration and I'm such a fan of his work. And uh, you know, maybe he should, he should make a bundle. I don't know. Like, I I just think basically bundles are a good thing. And um, like, uh, as long as there's there's a decent amount of overlap between the, the fan bases so that it doesn't feel like you're being forced to buy something that you really don't want and it feels like you're getting good value for your money, then it's a positive sum activity. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about sort of the the state of the underlying journalism uh, it, itself. And, and Lee, in a previous conversation we had, you gave me sort of a historical overview about how sort of the business model has evolved and how that has changed the underlying uh, content. Can you sort of recap that uh, a little bit here? Well, I think our previous conversation about journalism touched on the fact that they used to, you know, journalists and, and newspapers used to have a local monopoly in whatever geography they were based in. And so everyone had to consume everything that was in the newspaper. Whereas now there's been a delocalization effect where because everything has moved online, people have access to 
the best content, no matter where, you know, the home organization is situated. And in tandem with this, you've had the old business model of newspapers, which is advertising based. And for most advertisers for a while, newspapers were the most effective way to reach people in that particular geographic area. Now, all of those advertising dollars have also moved online to these large, huge, you know, humongous platforms that have way better data to target with um, than any newspaper individually can. Um, And so you have a lot of forces that have come together to make it such that like local newspapers have a really difficult time sustaining themselves as a business. And even large like elite media institutions are feeling the pain as well. Totally. So is the future just like Ben Thompson for every sector? Um, And maybe some of them are teaming up, maybe some of them aren't. But like, how, how does the actual, like, like, what are most journalists doing, you know, three, five years from now? So this might be an unpopular opinion, but I still feel like journalists do have value. Perhaps there is an oversupply of them today as a relic of this world in which, you know, every city, every little town had its own newspaper. But I still think that journalism fundamentally has value in the sense that these are folks who, you know, theoretically have spent many years of their lives cultivating sources, developing expertise in a certain in a certain domain or for a certain beat and can help the end consumer contextualize all of the information that's out there. I think in a world without journalists where everyone just has access to all of the primary sources, I mean, people can make sense of it themselves and do the work and put in the effort to try and like come to their own conclusions. But it's asking a lot of most people. It's, you know, it's the same reason in investing why LPs don't just go directly invest in startups. Like you want to entrust the dollars to these arbiters who have expertise in a certain domain, who can hit the pavement, meet all of the companies and invest in the companies that they deem to be the best, the high, the highest potential companies. Um, you know, I think everyone who is calling for the end of saying that journalists are no longer relevant in today's world are basically suggesting that everyone's going to go out there, find all of the relevant information, spend the time and invest their energy in arriving at you know, whatever conclusions and weighing all the different pieces of information appropriately, which I think is a lot, a lot to ask for at the normal consumer. Yeah. Like mechanically, when you think through what it would look like, if like the sort of citizen journalism vision was realized, it's like, oh, well, okay. So some people would actually specialize in it. Oh. And like, maybe they'd need institutions to help them with distribution and marketing and like, oh, like it's nice to have someone's like feedback and like fact checking, you know, it's like, we've reinvented journalism. Like it's just journalism. Maybe they agree with you. But like the whole point is like, okay, like start another institution. Maybe that's more aligned with your values of the kinds of stories you want told rather than attacking people is kind of my perspective. Yeah, no, totally. Like venture capitalists, it's important to have arbitrary selected, arbitrarily selected middlemen who rent seek and leech off the existing system for profit. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, the, it's not arbitrarily selected though. It's market selected. Yeah, no, Speak I, for I, yourself, Eric. I, yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but but I guess, so of, of course, journalists have, have a role and will still exist. The question is, how many of them will go away from New York Times and go towards Substack or go towards what Nathan is doing, which is creating their own bundle? Um, you know, yesterday it was interesting, you know, Matt Iglesias is getting, you know, into this, into this controversy at, at Vox. And uh, he's sort of, you know, my editorial here, he's sort of being silenced. And um, 
you know, there's there's demand there of people saying, hey, just leave, start your own Substack. You could, you know, have a thousand subscribers today. You can imagine like a Kickstarter to fund his cancellation, basically, is leaving. So, um, and the question is like, why does Matt stay? Or why do some of these New York Times journalists who have big audiences on their own pers- personal distribution, uh, wh- why stay when they can do what, what, what Nathan's doing, which is e- either go independent or, you know, hey, bring some of your, you know, journalism buddies and have much you know better economics. So you reinvent a journalist, but you're an owner now. Right. So do you, do you think that that will happen in droves? Do you think that, you know, three, five years from now, I look kind of like similar to today, incremental or... Yeah, what do you think? I, I can I can share some thoughts on this. I think I think the broader question that I often get is like, why doesn't everyone participate in the passion economy? Why does why do people still work at companies even? Like, why not just take advantage of the new platforms that exist to create something that you know reflects one's own values and vision of the world and just create it wholly in their own image? And I think an employer and being part of an organization has a lot of functions. Obviously, there's the income piece of having a job and, you know, going out on one's own, starting one's own media company, one's own newsletter. It comes with more upside, but it also entails more risk. I think being part of an organization de-risks a lot of things for a writer. Um, It basically functions as income smoothing especially when one is starting out in their career and doesn't have an audience already that they can leverage. Um, I would also say that I don't think everyone is trying to maximize for or optimize for income. Like not everyone is economically driven. I think people choose their jobs for a number of reasons and only one of them is your salary. I think another reason is the prestige and social status signal that gets attributed to one's employer. Um, like Nathan said from Eugene, like people are status seeking monkeys being calling yourself a New York times reporter. It still comes with a lot of prestige. Um, and some people really desire that. Um, I think of, you know, striking out on one's own and starting one's own media business and going independent. It's like being a founder and not everyone wants to take on that risk reward profile of being a founder. Yeah. I would, I would add to that. I think there's a lot of people who um, really want to specialize in um, really purely just the work that they do of like research and investigation and reporting and, and writing and enjoy that craft. And um, it is hard to, even though Substack does a lot of it for you, there's still a lot that you have to do, right? Like you have to kind of figure out what you're going to do about health insurance as like an example of a more administrative type thing. And then you're also going to have to figure out what you're going to do about a copy editor, which is more of like an operations type thing. And you're going to have to figure out what kind of content you should put behind the paywall and what kind of content you should make free. And you're going to have to figure out what kind of stories you can write that'll like spread because there's not this sort of distribution engine you had before. And it's just, it's sort of like gets right into the core of what you do is kind of like, oh, there's a thing I used to just be able to plug into and like go. Like, like imagine if you're a really great software engineer, is it better for you to like start your own sort of like indie hacker business or like, do you want to go work at a rocket ship? Right. Like there's real great reasons actually to be a part of something that you're, you have mutual sort of um, mutually beneficial relationships with the other human beings. Right. The thing that I think this will change forever, right. The existence of Substack and like the technology and also just the social norm of people going their own 
is it changes the sort of like best alternative to negotiated agreement, the BATNA, right? For top talent, it changes it significantly. So now there's a lot more bargaining power, right? That supply has if you're a publisher. And so it's going to change the way that people are compensated for sure. And so I think even for people who don't go to Substack, we're just going to see an overall decrease probably in profitability of media companies and and probably an overall increase in like compensation for talents. More maybe more similar to what we see in like, Hollywood or some certain areas where it's like people who are driving a lot of value get to capture a lot of value really on the talent end. Yeah. So I think the subscription model where people are earning a direct subscription payment from, from their readers or from their audience in general, I think it also comes with a downside that is not often spoken about, which is that, you know, if you think of what a subscription is, it's consumers paying for the repeated delivery of some value. I think that was Ben Thompson's um, description of what a subscription means when someone decides to subscribe to something. And, you know, when consumers decide to subscribe to whatever it is that you're putting out into the world, they are wanting to be delivered things that sort of corroborate their point of view. I don't like it's really hard to think of examples of many consumers who would regularly spend money for something that they disagree with or that challenged them. I do read the dispatch, which is is hard for me. Sometimes the dispatch is a conservative Substack publication. mm -hmm. I disagree with them on a lot, but I think I find it high quality. So I do it. I don't know if that's the, I think you're special. I think most people don't. And I mean, that was why after the whole editorial fiasco at New York, at the New York times recently, there were so many cancellations was people don't really want to, you know, vote with their dollars for something that they don't agree with. And so if you go independent and charge your audience a subscription, I think the expectation implicitly is that you continue to deliver much the same type of content as before. And you keep like delivering the same type of value to them. Whereas if you're part of a larger organization and an employee, you can, decide to experiment and give up your old specialization and try on a new role. Or if you were, if you had this beat before, you can decide that you're no longer interested in that and cover something entirely different. Yeah. Is it fair to say that the passion economy in media, at least is sort of, it's the antidote to cancellation in the sense that you could just go, you know, independent and go straight to certain customers, but that it also, you know, causes more polarization or, you know, fractalization or or fragmentation at, at the same time? Yeah, I think that's a accurate description. Yeah. Is it a little bit of what's what's old is new again in the sense of like before there were big centralized media, like in the days of like Ben Franklin or, or I, don't, I don't know if you guys have read about, right. about this, but you a bunch of different sort of, he, was, he had a bunch of different pseudonyms. I mean, just a bunch of in, independent sort of voices attacking each other. Infamous scribblers, right? The book. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's interesting to think about. I don't know if you have a take on what that means for journal, like the output of journalism when the world is more like that than the world is more like 1950s or something. I think it, it means that users will sort of curate their own sources of information, largely probably to be things that they agree with. And there's probably going to be more polarization as a result. I have like a slightly more optimistic take, maybe unrealistic, but I think that a lot of the sort of like I think there's I think there's different ways to to read stuff that you disagree with. Like I, I find no value in reading something that's kind of like people pandering to their own team. If I'm not on that team, I don't find it that fun or in, or or interesting. But I do really like when people are like, "Hey, you may not agree with me here, but like let me persuade you of a couple things." And like I don't think you're a terrible person for disagreeing with me, but like just think about it this way because maybe there's some stuff you hadn't considered. I always find that 
fun. I don't know. And I, I don't think I'm that special. Like a lot of people who I know in my life who like, I, I think, I think there's, there's a good part of people's nature just generally that go for that. But there's, it's hard to have a business model for that because, um, you know, how much do you want to pay for that or how often do you want to read it? But sometimes it's really high quality. I think it's very possible to make that stuff super entertaining. And, um, I don't know, that's, that's at least how I feel about the dispatch personally, as I'm kind of like, I'm glad it's in my mix. I don't, I would not spend my time consuming Fox news. I don't, I wouldn't find a lot of value there, but I do find value in the dispatch despite sort of usually shaking my head and crossing my arms when I read it and taking yeah. notes in my room furiously of why I disagree. I find it to be an edifying activity. I, th- I think people will to some degree do that. And maybe people will learn to carve out niches for that kind of thing. One quick anecdote is um, Van Jones uh, from CNN was talking about how him and Newt Gingrich, who's conservative used to have this sort of like, you know, fiery debate where they would talk about where they disagree. And that was a big hit. And then uh, after commercials, they would come back and say, here's where we agree. And, and the, 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 the studio said, hey, no one's going to want to watch that. Like, put, put that, you know, put that away. And they insisted on it. And it's for the good of the you know, Republic. And they added it. And apparently, like, the ratings were so bad for that, uh, <laughs> the, the second part, that it, like, affected the next show and made Van Jones really cynical about Oh, <laughs> um, no. But uh, I, I'm pessimistic, but in a slightly optimistic way, which is I think things are getting way more polarized. <laughs> It's only going to get worse, but sort of glass half full, like the only people usually say polarization is a bad thing. And in some sense it is, but what's worse than polarization is like a dictatorship or is like one side right. is all the power and you know, you can't, no one can say what the, no one can even voice the opposite side. So polarization implies like there's some sort of like, there's at least some two equal semi-equal forces that are like duking out, which is healthy in a democracy. Well, relative to, Right. Not, you know, not having that. <laughs> Relative to not having that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, that's my half last poll. Um, I want to ask you a business question. Uh, so, my understanding of the athletic is that you know people said it uniquely worked in sports because sports has sort of is so fragmented and has local sports and people are so passionate about this thing that a small amount of people are also passionate about. Whereas other topics, like I was thinking about maybe an athletic for crypto at some point, like maybe there's just not enough commentary on like you know, people don't care about like, they care about Bitcoin, not like the 51st or coin necessarily. And so how do you, how do you think about it? Is that unique to sports? Do you think that also relates to business or like how far can we take this athletic for X and what are the criteria that make it successful? Yeah, we don't know. I don't, it's not like a company that we've raised like millions upon millions of dollars for. So luckily I think we have the flexibility to kind of like find out, but I, I do think there's a really good, at least to me, it's worth, it's worth pursuing further because, you know, everybody has a job and I think a lot of people really want to do better at their job genuinely and they want to they want to advance or maybe they don't like their job and they want to get a totally different kind of job and and they need information to help them do that. And so the sources of information for that in the past have been like I mean and also in the current obviously are like you know the business section of the bookstore or like there's magazines like the Harvard Business Review and there's like the Wall Street Journal their famous advertisement that's like the the best sales letter of all time or whatever is like there's two people and one of them led the wall street journal. And so that person had a better career, you know, like people, there's deep knowledge for, for, um, you know, useful insight that helps, helps you in your career. And, um, there's a lot of different facets of the economy, right? So like there's somebody in waste management, who's like thinking deeply about some problem right now that there's probably a thousand other people that are also thinking about that problem, that that would be their favorite thing in the bundle. And there's somebody else who's like, you know, a, a manager of an engineering team for like, 
you know, SpaceX or whatever. And they're like, we have these unique type of engineering uh, management problems that like somebody else, maybe from Stripe is like, oh yeah, I have the same thing. And if you can like create a channel to convene uh, those minds and unlock that knowledge, then I think it could be really valuable. And, and if you think of the various um, you know, industries and, and markets that make the world go around, it's really large. Um, and so it's all about, I would say the niches. Um, and so if you aggregate enough of them and also you have enough overlap between them where it's not like everyone just only cares about the one thing, but there's also adjacent things that they care about or like kind of global topics that like productivity or strategy that are like fascinating across many different industries, um, then you could have an effective bundle where it doesn't work as if everyone only cares about their one thing or if people just don't care. But I, I don't think either of those things are true in this case. And do you think Substack over time, to, is there an earlier question as to, I don't think we got to, is going to have to bundle or how are they going to keep their best writers as they, you know, lock up subscribe, you know, subscriber numbers and realize, Hey, I could just do this on my own and get like Ben Thompson does and get a hundred percent of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, Substack offers really a lot and they'll just only keep offering more as time goes on. Um, you know, if you look at all the work that Ben Thompson had to do to set that thing up, it's very non-trivial and it's, it's not just about the pain that you as Ben Thompson, like doing your own thing have to set up. It's also like, let's say you started on Substack because it was the easiest. If you want to switch, like, you can, <laughs> it's kind of a pain. And so they have a nice, it's not like a bad lock-in. It's just that like their system works really easily and nice. And so I wouldn't underestimate that as like just a force, right? It's like, I got to hire a programmer and like all this stuff. And like, maybe technically I would like, okay, I'm investing all this new money and creating this new system. And like, is that worth my 10%? You need to be in the like high hundreds of thousands to make that an obvious yes. And by that point, maybe you just value your time <laughs> and you're just like, it works, you know, as long as, long as you feel like it basically works. Um, you know, I do think if you're, yeah, if you're getting into like the top publication, I think publicly the dispatch has said, um, that it's like, it's in the millions of ARR, you know? Yeah. Like how much bigger can they get? Like, it wouldn't make sense obviously for the New York times to be on Substack. So like, maybe there is some upper limit, but like, I think that there's this market of like basically individuals who don't want to have to manage much besides the writing or at least the writing and kind of like audience development slash marketing of their thing that, um, the simple solution uh, will be more than good enough and they'll be able to keep productizing other stuff. So I think it'll, I think it'll work um, over time, but yeah, at the very high end, there's a pressure for sure. Yeah. My understanding was that Patreon was in a similar situation where in the beginning they were trying to promise distribution, but then just sort of double down on, Hey, we're going to provide the best infrastructure possible. And maybe they realized that they couldn't bring significant distribution or they couldn't do both at a high enough level. Do you, uh, and it's interesting, Substack isn't necessarily trying to go the distribution path. They're trying to just focus on infrastructure. Do you, have, do you have a take on how those types of businesses should think about it? It's always really hard to drive distribution because there's you have to have trust. And so with Facebook, I trust that the my friends are saying interesting stuff and that the algorithm will surface the most interesting stuff for my friends or like same deal to some extent right on Twitter. And so um, on Substack, I mean, like I could imagine products that they could create that are sort of like, you know, an um, a sort of amalgamation of all the different Substacks you subscribe to that like, I don't really know. I mean, I, I used to work there. I haven't worked there for a while. So I don't know like what's immediately on the roadmap anymore for like what they're building, but that would make sense. And then that would create some real estate where Substack could put in, you know, other publications that you might like, because, you know, here's, it's in the middle of other stuff that you already do like, like, or even like Spotify discovers type playlists. Like there's all sorts of stuff they could do. And that would really help because you get new audience. And that's a huge thing that makes YouTube work is like, you just put your video up and if it's good, it kind of gets an audience. Um, so that would clearly be very valuable and help them justify the 10%. You know, it's, it's tricky though, because, um, 
like for the same kind of conflict of interest reasons that for Shopify, it's tricky to introduce a sort of aggregation layer with like their shop app where it's like, oh, now Shopify is sort of competing with Amazon to like own demand and channel it back to, so like I search for like backpack and then Shopify tells me which store I should buy a backpack from. That's a little bit in conflict with Shopify's promise that like their customer is the store owner. And so if, if you have to decide between which backpack to recommend, uh, you're kind of, now, you're, now your customer is the, uh, the end purchaser. Um, and it may be tough to balance that. And so Substack could run into some similar issues, but you know, it's all, it, it all like the devil's in the details, you know, and like they could find a way to do it and make it work. Yeah. I'm curious what Lee thinks about that. Yeah. I think the issue with Patreon in trying to become an aggregator or drive distribution is that the content delivery doesn't actually happen on the platform. It happens elsewhere. And so the whole nature of Patreon was, I mean, it was built to be something incremental to all of the content that you were already putting out into the universe on all of these other sites. Um, And so because of that, I think it's really hard for them to be able to direct traffic to any other creator because users weren't coming to Patreon to really consume content per se. Right. That's I think that's a key difference with Patreon and versus Substack, where Substack actually is the site that you go to in order to consume different authors' writing. And so I think they are better positioned in order to be able to drive users to discover new writers. You know, they have information on what in particular every reader is actually consuming, what topics they're interested in, and I think are are in a good position to actually be able to drive additional incremental readership for different authors. I want to get you, both of you have, have thought about this, read about this and, and worked in it. Nate, you were a gimlet. What's your TLDR on the, on the podcast space? How, how soon are we to, to subscription podcasts at scale as, as sort of like a, you know, consumer, consumer behavior? I think we are far away from it for, for, you know, podcasts as we now know them today. The unfortunate thing about podcasts is that similar to like text content and journalism, the cat is sort of out of the bag in the sense that like there is so much content out there already that's online available for free that it's really hard to then say, okay, I'm going to start monetizing my own podcast, even though no one else's podcast is monetized and charge a subscription for this content because I think, you know, it's really premium content because so much amazing content is already available in the podcasting world for free. I think it's really hard to change consumer behavior there as a result. So one of my takeaways when I published that huge podcasting report at E16Z last year was I'm actually interested in other languages and other markets where podcasting hasn't actually become such a mature market and dominated by this free open model. Um, like I think there's many other countries where there's actually a dearth of really interesting high quality audio content where a new company could actually come out, create really high quality content and charge a subscription price for it. I think in the US and in English speaking markets, I think it'll be really challenging to to get users to pay. Yeah. I agree. And part of the reason is just there's so much friction, right? Like technically you can like get a URL and like paste it in your app. Oh, assuming you use like Apple podcasts, overcast, but like not if you use Spotify and like, there's just, there's a lot of complexity. It's not a good user experience yet. And it doesn't seem like Apple's going to make it a good user experience. And it doesn't seem like Spotify is even going to allow it. And Spotify is gaining market share so rapidly that it's just kind of like, it's a very risky 
So like, I think if you're like Ben Thompson, I think dithering is a great idea. I love dithering. It's his paid podcast with John Gruber. It's, it's, um, I think fantastic. And I'm a, I'm a happy subscriber to that. Um, I think it's a really smart move for them, you know, but if I'm like a big media company, like the New York times, like, is it really a huge part of my, um, you know, strategy for the podcasting division to like go into like paid RSS feeds? Like, I think it's probably not a good idea unless you're doing some sort of interesting partnership with Spotify or something like that. Um, and they want to pilot something where users can subscribe and they'll just take like a sort of like app store ish cut. Um, that could be cool, but like, I'm, I'm not doing it with the, with the sort of bad user experience and the platform risk presented by Apple and Spotify, just, uh, if I'm them. So are we yeah. dubious of any- I think the other path for someone like the New York times to be able to monetize the podcast is to just own the distribution channel themselves and distribute their own podcast through like the New York times app or through their own podcasting app that has their content and it's subscription only. I think for content companies that have the scale and the trust of a huge base of consumers, they can probably enact a paywall, but they should do it through their own platform and design a really frictionless experience around it rather than, as you said, trying to create some sort of private RSS feed. So, so are we dubious of any sort of unicorns coming out of the podcast space uh, in the next you know, five to eight years in the US? Hmm. Well, I think it depends on what you even define as a podcast. Like, I am bullish on new audio content and especially any sort of content that is really high ROI for the end user. Like anything that's in the education realm or aids the end user in their professional life. I think that is the type of content that is like, there's not a lot of it out there in terms of free podcasts. And I think people have a high willingness to pay for it. But, you know, if if it's just a paid piece of audio content, like I think a lot of people would actually protest that being called a podcast in the first place. Yeah, I, I think like it's possible. I think that um, it might I think it'll actually it could be a really big thing. But if there's no if the platforms actually move it in a direction that make it easier and there are some like big successful examples then I do think it could work, but I think that's what it would take. I think it'd take like platforms actually becoming more friendly to this business model. And then some, some new creator that's built from the start for the subscription model, gaining huge traction, like the way that Ben Thompson has in newsletters. Cause the problem is if you've built up a really big audience with an ad supported business, it's very hard, I think, to transition to the, to the subscription model because the way the kind of content you create has to be really different. Your whole, it's kind of like baked in from the beginning. Like, are you adapting your whole thing to like making subscriptions work or to making ads work? And the more adapted and optimized you are, the harder it is to become the other thing. And so the big successful people now from the ad space world are probably won't be the ones um, for the subscription world, but maybe there'll be some that aren't actually super optimized for the ads world. And they just happen to have been doing that, but for whatever, like, idiosyncratic reason they just chose not to optimize like i think of accidental tech podcast marco arment uh casey liss and um john syracusa have this cool podcast that's like super nerdy super deep very long feels like a subscription kind of thing and um they happen to have had ads but it's not like you know trying to be some general audience thing you know and so they they just launched the paid thing and i wouldn't be surprised if that works pretty well but like they did it on their own. They didn't use a platform. So, you know, like where does that value go? Like if you're asking for a unicorn, like is it going to be like Supercast or Glow or Supporting Cast or any of these that are kind of like Substack for podcasts? Like it might be, it could, 
but it's just, um, I would say it's a little risky at this point to bet on that. Yeah. Sort of in closing a bit, I think it would be remiss if we had a conversation about media technology and didn't mention the current battle royale that is playing itself out on Twitter. And I, uh, I liked your, your podcast on, on Nathan and on your, your podcast with your co-founder. I don't want to like that. I don't want to mention the individual people as much as talk about the underlying sort of civil war that has emerged over the past year, maybe, or maybe longer, but, um, the, the, and the way I describe, I want to describe it and then get your, your take on it. The way I sort of see it is, is journalists and media corporations look at technologists and venture capitalists and say, Hey, why are you so rich and powerful? Who made you, you know, kings of, of, you know, why are you stealing our ad dollars? Why, why is all world, you know, what the world's information filtered through you in the sense that you're influencing elections, you need to be held accountable. You need, you need to be you know checked. And also you're obnoxious and think you're, you know, changing the world when you're maybe having a negative impact in their eyes. I, I think that's their narrative. Feel free to edit that. And then the other narrative, the opposite narrative, technology narrative is who made you, you know, why are you taking out your personal vendettas against us or your own, you know, uh, that we're, you know, out competing you um, and, you know, capping our CEO, getting people fired. Who, who keeps you accountable? Who checks you? Why are you the, you're just a Twitter user. Why, why are you the authoritative voice? Um, and let's have, you know, a sort of equivalence of, you know, w- when it's not when, um, when I do something, I dox, but when you do it, you investigate, like, you know, we're all citizens here. Let's, let's have the same rights. And, and that these are, you know, fundamentally companies that are in competition with each other. Um, or, or in terms of business model perspective, um, but also in terms of a, a vision of the, of the future perspective, how would you edit or add to um, my description, Nathan, of, of the way I describe the, 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 the sort of underlying conflict? Oh, man, I, I would describe it as I don't think that it's uh, common for members of the kind of like press in any industry to like and, and, and the people that those journalists cover to like have a super cozy relationship. Like it's always tense and it should be tense. And I think the difference is, you know, you weren't going to have these kind of personal fights play out over like the newspaper or on TV before you just kind of like maybe behind closed doors, people called each other and they were angry and no one else saw it. (laughs) And you're like, okay, like everything's, I guess, basically fine because it's just invisible to most people. But when it's on Twitter, it's a totally different thing. And I think that there's a really important role for kind of like taking a deep breath and being like, everyone's a human and no one's perfect. And there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on in tech and, but there's a lot of great stuff and there's a lot of bad stories that get written. And there's also a lot of great, really important stories, really critical stories. Like Alex Kantrowitz published one today that was really well researched, really fair. wasn't trying to villainize someone, but you know, shed light on a problem that a company had that it's like sort of, okay, who, what random person is going to like be able to like bring light to that in the same way that he could, because he was compensated to like actually deeply consider it and study it over the course of like weeks. Right. Like, this is where it's like some random person who's doing something else for a full-time job and not trained as a journalist is like going to struggle to be able to cover that with the same nuance. And so um, I think it's, uh, I think it's just a moment to like take a deep breath and like, you know, <laughs> and also if you systematically really don't like the coverage, like uh, and you think there's an opportunity, like build something else. That's awesome. Like you don't have to like fight the other thing, just like build something else. And I see a lot more like taking down the other thing than building when, it, you know, like I thought tech people were all about, it's time to build. That's what we should be doing, right? <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think they would respond that they're just defense, you know, self-defense. But I, 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 I hear you on that. Uh, Lee, do you, have a, do you have a take that uh, may or may not get you canceled? I think people just need to treat each other with more empathy. Yeah. That's okay, yeah. My That's take. nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I hear that. Putting aside the individuals, just like the underlying 
Um, yeah, I think people are assuming bad intent here. And I think the internet in a way sort of facilitates that because you can't just, you know, have a one-on-one conversation easily and really see that the other person is a real human. But I think we need to remember, especially during COVID when we are all mediated by screens and talking to each other as pixels, like we need to remember that the other person is also human and probably has good intentions. But is it fair to assume that people like as a default will just respond to their incentives? And so if you're you're someone at Facebook, you're going to optimize for whatever gets the most, you know, time on site or clicks or whatever the thing that they're incentivized to. And if you're, you know, at a media corporation, you're also going to optimize for the thing that, you know, makes the most money, it gets the most clicks or subscribers. Like, is, is that like, why are we, uh, should we default assume better intent that people rise up above their incentives or should we just assume that people will respond to their incentives? So in this particular case, what is the allegation of like the media's incentives? To respond to what their subscribers want, which is sort of, you know, what politically motivated on, on one side of the spectrum and also sort of anti-technology, like, like as Call it tech takedowns. The audience mm-hmm. wants tech takedowns. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah like I, I think that people will respond to that incentive, but not if they don't believe in it. Like, that's the thing is like, I don't think we have to, this is the thing about questioning people's motivations is it's like the audience that is on, on the sort of like demand side of it wants it. Cause they genuinely believe there's like a lot of bad stuff that goes on and like people need to be held accountable and the reporters want to do it. Cause they genuinely believe there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on and people need to be held accountable. And um, it's not like something that they're doing for money. There's a lot of other better ways to make money. You know, I think any journalist would tell you. And so I don't see why it's useful to take it to this level of like uh, sort of like false consciousness or like a duplicitous, like uh, sort of like hidden selfish motivation or whatever. It's just like they really believe something that the people in tech who don't like that coverage really disagree with. And let's keep it at the level of like a factual disagreement about is this story accurate or inaccurate? If it's inaccurate, how so? Is it missing context? Is it, was there a fact that was wrong? Like talking about that is helpful. Talking about, um, oh, they're just like doing it for clicks is kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. And you're just doing your job for money too. Yeah. Like everyone's, you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. hundred percent. And so, and I, I totally agree with you when you say, you know, it's, it's time to build. Don't argue with apologies. Old tweet is don't argue about taxis, build Uber. Don't argue about federal reserve, build Bitcoin, you know, it, just build an alternative. And I'm excited to see what 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 emerges and i think he's got some interesting ideas who knows the work but about sort of like open source journalism you know a, a reproducible journalism just sort of like new paradigms like journalism having a box score so you could sort of like uh, nlp can sort of strip out like when um because th- eric weinstein has this sort of this term called russell conjugation like i dox you leak a journalist investigates you know just like the the tone that it could be totally factually correct but it just has a certain tone to it and using nlp you could strip out the tone so it's just like just like a basketball game you just see like the stats or something and so i'm excited for new innovations there who knows it could be interesting it's a great place to wrap my guests today have been lee jin and uh nathan bichez uh guys where can you point uh, our, our listeners to uh everything.substack.com for me and for me, it's lee.substack.com. Thank you both so much. Uh, this has been a great episode. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.